0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information,
1: visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au
0: Now if I were to ask you that if you died today, do you have any assurance that you know, beyond the grave you would be right with God? and that you have full assurance about that. Perhaps you would say, yes, I do, but maybe it's that reality is more a humdrum reality for you for some reason. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know that to be true, but it doesn't excite you, it doesn't thrill your heart, it doesn't um, cause you to want to, worship God and give thanks to God and even be even more grateful for Jesus. Well, I trust that this morning as we look at this passage that we're looking at in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18, we will be able to see afresh once again what Jesus has done on the cross for sinful people like us, for those who have put our trust in him. And even for those who haven't put their trust in him, that there is something wonderful, the the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross, that is available for all those who will repent and turn and put their trust in Jesus. See, the book of Hebrews is, I must say, it's probably one of the most difficult books in the New Testament. Now I do want to commend you for just um, staying on track as we've been going through this wonderful book. Uh, It's certainly a book that's heavy in every sense, theologically in its content. And even the way the author reasons, it's also quite heavy. But as we look at it and as we understand what the author is trying to say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... What we, un- what we begin to see more and more is the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's really why the, the author has written this book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews. See, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, those who were Jewish before and under that old covenant system. And they are now tempted because of persecution, because Christianity is under persecution, and these people are tempted to go back to those Jewish practices, those old covenant practices, back to the priests and back to the uh, animal sacrifices. And so what he does then is he wants to convince them of who Jesus is and what he has done. And how he does that, as he does that, he wants to really show the people that this old covenant has been done away with. It is no longer in operation. It's become obsolete. See, because unless he can argue from Scripture and show that the old covenant has become obsolete, this pull to go back to that all covenant ways will still be there for these precious Jewish Christians. And so that's the, that's the big argument that he's been trying to make in these first few chapters. That this all covenant system has been done away with with the coming of Christ and he has established a new system, a new covenant has been put in place. Really, w- when you think of just the, the big idea, the central point of his theological argumentation, because really this, this is the last section up till verse 18, is all the theological argumentation. Then after this is a warning, and then some practical exhortations in light of all this doctrine that he's talked about. And, and really the center point of his theological argumentation is really this, that Jesus is so much more superior He's so much more greater that he's, he's better than anyone and everything. And, and, it, and he focuses on, in chapters 7 to 10, the fact that Jesus is the better priest. He's an altogether different priest of a different order, of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's a king priest, in fact. And he will be a priest forever. And then he went on to say that this this king priest, this Jesus who's a better priest, also mediates a new covenant, such that this old covenant has become obsolete. And then now he's going to talk to us about how Jesus is also the better sacrifice and that's the last of his argumentation, even though he's touched on the fact that Jesus has offered himself as a sacrifice. He's just going to argue even further how Jesus is the better and ultimate sacrifice compared to all the other sacrifices before. And I trust that as we look at how Jesus is the better sacrifice, it will cause us to really not just marvel at the doctrine, because the whole point of why the author has written this is not simply doctrine for the sake of doctrine but so that we would understand the doctrine and it would cause us to love Jesus more and to cling on to Jesus more as we understand who he is and what it is that he has done and is doing. So I've titled this morning's sermon as Jesus, the better sacrifice. And we'll look at this section verses 1 through 18 under two sections. We'll look at the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice in verses 1 through 10. And then we'll look at how the author proves the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice in verses 11 through 18. Really, um, in 11 through 18, or even verses 1 through 10, the way he argues is in the first four verses, he will first say how the all-covenant sacrifices were actually not sufficient. They were ineffective. And then by contrast, in verses 5 through 10, he will argue to say, this is how Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. This is why Jesus had to die, that it couldn't be any animal, and it had to be Jesus himself and how he is the all-sufficient sacrifice. And then in verses 11 through 18, he's going to prove that further Uh, by making two further points in verses 11 through 14. He's going to talk about the kind of posture that Jesus has now. And he says, by the posture that Jesus has now, it proves further that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. And then lastly, in verses 15 through to 18, he will further say that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient uh, because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at, first of all, to understand that Jesus is the better sacrifice, how the author is going to argue for the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. And he starts with really the insufficiency of the animal sacrifices. That's in verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that first. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. When he talks about the law here, he's talking about the entirety of the all covenant. And he's saying that the old covenant with its laws is but a shadow of the good things to come. And you say, uh, what are the good things to come? Well, if you turn back to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 11, it says there that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good good things that have come. And over there we saw that the good things that have come in Hebrews 9.11 is talking about the blessings of the new covenant. That, that is there in Christ. That's the good things that have come. The good things to come, the, the blessings of the new covenant, like the giving of the new heart and complete forgiveness of sins. And so what the author is now saying is that the old covenant with its laws is, was simply a shadow of those good things to come, of those new covenant promises of Complete forgiveness of sin and having a new heart and so on and so forth that would come with the dawn of Jesus Christ. Now this idea of shadow, you know, if you think of Jesus' redemptive work and uh, that new covenant that he mediates, if you think of a light shining on that, if Jesus' redemptive work and that new covenant that has come into play, if you're shining a light on that, It would be like that light then casts a shadow in the old covenant. It's almost like saying that old covenant was a rough outline, a rough figure, so to speak, pointing forwards to the reality of these good things that would come in Christ. Remember, as I previously mentioned, see, the old covenant was never meant to save people. That was not the intention of the old covenant at all. The old covenant was simply a shadow. It was simply a teaching tool. It was simply a teacher of what Christ would accomplish and the new covenant that he would mediate. And this was all according to God's plan. From eternity past, God had this plan in place because this, this shadow of what Christ would do and the new covenant he would bring, that rough outline of that, the rough shadow of that was already found in the old covenant so that there would come a point where all, the old covenant would become obsolete and the reality of those things would come to fulfillment. And what he's saying here is, so the old covenant is simply a shadow of what Christ would accomplish. And so the same sacrifices that were offered continually under the old covenant, it could never make perfect those who draw near to God. Now we've looked at this word perfect a few times now in Hebrews, and it's the idea of bringing to completion, to bring something to its intended end. It's saying that the old covenant with its laws could never make people fit, bring them to that, in, that ultimate end where they can come into the presence of God. It could never make them perfect to come into the presence of God. It could n- never make them fit to come into the presence of God. Why? Because it couldn't actually bring forgiveness of sins. It couldn't actually cleanse people of their their guilty conscience. And so in this sense, it couldn't perfect people so that they could come into God's presence. And remember, the author is talking to mostly Jewish Christians who are in danger of going back to that old covenant sacrificial system. And he's reminding them, you see, the old covenant system is, was just a shadow. It was always intended to be a shadow. God had intended it to be that way, pointing to the good things that would come ultimately in Christ. Its purpose was simply to prepare the people for what God was going to bring about through Jesus Christ. So the old covenant was merely preparatory. This was the purpose of the old covenant and its law. But it didn't actually deal with people's sins and make them fit to come into God's presence. Now the author proves this point by reminding his listeners how the old covenant sacrifices worked. To talk about how ineffectual it was. Look at verse 2. Otherwise otherwise meaning if it could actually perfect the people to come into God's presence, would they not have ceased to be offered these sacrifices since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? See, the author's point is, if the job could be completed, where sins could be forgiven under the old covenant, then the whole sacrificial system would have ceased. The fact that the animal sacrifices were repeated again and again demonstrated the fact that the people's sins were not fully dealt with. And the repetition was evidence of that. Because if, somebody were, if something were to work, then you wouldn't need to go back to that system again and again and again. One sacrifice would have been enough. But the sacrifice was continuous and repetitive and it demonstrated that the sins of the people were not fully
1: dealt with, that it was ineffective. Really, under the old covenant, the author says, if the people were
0: assured of total forgiveness of sins and cleansing from sin, they would not be repeatedly offering these sacrifices for their sins, to put it positively. Then he goes on to say, but really, in verse 3, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So instead of forgiveness and cleansing from sins, these sacrifices served as a reminder of sins. That's what these sacrifices did. Notice that it says every year. That's not to say the, the daily sacrifices wasn't a reminder, but he has in mind particularly the day of atonement, because that's something that happened yearly, every year. And so if you think of the day of the atonement, as the high priest went through that elaborate process of sacrificing animals, both for himself and for the sin of his people, and he took the blood into the most holy place. It was a vivid reminder to the people of their sinfulness, that they are in fact sinful, and therefore they cannot access God because of their sin. And the Day of Atonement was a stark reminder of that. And even though the whole ritual would be carried out on the Day of Atonement, the fact that it had to be repeated again every year, the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and every year after that, it was a constant reminder that atonement was not complete, that their sins were not fully dealt with. In fact, it was also a constant reminder that even God himself still remembered their sins because it was God who required them to repeat these sacrifices that they were still, and that they were still shut off from God's direct presence. So on the one side, people are reminded of their sin, and then on top of that, they're reminded that, oh, God still remembers my sin. That's why he's requiring me to offer this sacrifice again and again and again and again. God has not forgotten my sin. In fact, he remembers my sin. That's why he
1: requires these sacrifices. And so even though there was some kind of temporary relief,
0: so to speak, of pardon for sin, you know, once the day of atonement came. No one could have full assurance that their sins are fully forgiven. Because again, it had to be repeated. In fact, the problem is made clear in verse 4. This is because, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the sacrifice of bulls and goats, it is impossible. Not that, you know,
1: it's just absolutely impossible to take away the sins of people through that animal sacrifice. So what these sacrifices essentially did is,
0: was showing the people the need for a once-for-all sacrifice. Because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And it was reminding the people of a need for a once and for all sacrifice that would one day come, that would
1: ultimately atone for the sins of the people. The animal sacrifices and the whole old covenant system
0: simply served as a rough outline of pointing to the substance of the good things that would come about when Jesus would come and accomplish redemption ultimately. The old covenant was simply preparing the people for Christ and the new system or the new covenant that he would bring about. So here in the first four verses, the author just talks about, okay, so you understand how ineffective the animal sacrifices were. And the very fact that there was so much of repetition was a reminder both to you and the fact that God still remembers your sin. And so it was a reminder of sin in every sense. And it was a reminder that these sacrifices were ineffectual. And now he argues about the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice and really why Jesus himself had to die. And to do that, the author now turns to the Old Testament. And this is a quotation really from Psalm 40, which was part of our Bible reading this morning. Let me just read verses 5 through 7, and then I'll give some comments on that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, as I mentioned, this is a quote from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a psalm that is written by King David. And it's a psalm about David waiting on the Lord for deliverance and how the Lord brought deliverance by picking him up from the miry clay and setting his feet on solid ground. And then as he's thinking about the Lord's deliverance, David brings to mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what the Lord requires of his king, The king who will ultimately deliver his people.
1: And that's what is then quoted here in Hebrews. And what David is saying there in Psalm 40,
0: which is quoted now in Hebrews, is he's speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of the ultimate Davidic king. And what he says is this. Lord, what you require of your king is not someone who simply offers sacrifices and offerings. But what you require is one who has open ears. One you have given open ears. In fact, there's a slight change there if you look back at Psalm 40 verse 6. Just look back at Psalm 46. It's very similar to what is quoted here. But there's a difference to what is said in Hebrews. Instead of saying, a body prepared for me, it says that you have given open ears. Now I'll explain the difference, but let me just explain what Psalm 40 is saying first. The idea of having open ears is the idea of being obedient. It's the idea of having open ears to listen and obey God. It's that idea. And David in Psalm 40 itself, verse 12, testifies that he has failed to obey God. That his sins are ever before him. That, that his iniquities are so much. So he's not that kind of king who can ultimately deliver his people. So the point that David is saying here in, in what he has just said, he's speaking prophetically of the the ultimate greater son of David, the ultimate Davidic king, he will be one who is fully obedient to God. He will be one who will be fully righteous. And only he can bring ultimate righteousness for people and not animal sacrifices. Let me say that again. What David is saying in this quotation is that The ultimate Davidic king is one who will be fully obedient to God. He'll be one who has open ears. He'll be one who is fully righteous. And only he can bring ultimate righteousness for his people, not animal sacrifices. Only this fully obedient Davidic king can bring ultimate righteousness and deliver his people. In fact, in Psalm 40, the word translated for deliverance is really the word for righteousness. And so essentially he's saying this Davidic king, only this fully obedient Davidic king can bring ultimate righteousness and deliver his people. Now you say, okay, Psalm 40 says, okay, this is some Davidic king who has open ears or obedient ears, and he's the one who can deliver his people and can bring righteousness. Now turn with me also to Isaiah 50 verses 5 through 6. The Lord is here talking about the suffering servant of the Lord. Who's the suffering servant? The promised Messiah. And listen to what is being said of the
1: suffering servant In Isaiah fifty verses five and six. The Lord God has opened
0: my ear. Does that ring a bell? Sounds a bit like Psalm forty, doesn't it? The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, and I turned not backward, and I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And it goes on. So what, what Isaiah is doing is he's picking up from Psalm 40 of what David said this Davidic king would be. An obedient king, one who would bring righteousness and deliver his people. Now Isaiah is picking up on that and says, This ultimate Davidic king with the open ear is none other than The suffering servant, the Messiah. And this Messiah is one who is going to be obedient to the point where he will yield his whole body in obedience to God. Not just his ears, his cheeks, his face, his entire body fully submitted to the Lord. And so the author of Hebrews is picking up all of that that is mentioned about the Davidic king, about the Messiah. He's picking up all that and he's coming back to the Hebrews and saying, you know what was said in the Old Testament? That was talking about the coming of Christ in his incarnation. The fact that he will be obedient to the Father even to the point of death to deliver his people see what he's saying is God doesn't want mere sacrifice of animals the only acceptable sacrifice is the sacrifice that comes through perfect obedience and for Jesus this meant something far greater for Jesus the messiah Perfect obedience to God meant not just being obedient and then offering animal sacrifice. No, for Jesus the Messiah, being perfectly obedient meant offering his own life as a sacrifice for the people. So it takes on a whole new sense when then it's applied to Jesus. Now the author explains the significance of what he has just of that quotation from Psalm 40 and Isaiah 50. Verses 8 and 9. Here, here are the two implications he says. When he said above, that's referring to a quotation, and he quotes this now, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These were offered according to the law. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is talking about the Messiah in the first person. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So the author is saying, that was talked about the Messiah. And the first implication of that is that he does away with the first in order to establish the second. See, God never intended for the animal sacrifices to be permanent. When Christ willingly came down to earth to do the Father's will, to offer up his body as a sacrifice, to be the ultimate sacrifice for his people, what that meant is that the old covenant system of animal sacrifices would be done away with and a new covenant would be would be established. That's the first implication of that quotation. That he does away with the first in order to establish the second. That when Jesus came willingly in obedience to offer his body as a sacrifice for his people, in obedience to God, the old covenant system of animal sacrifices were done away with and the new covenant system was established. That's the first implication of that quotation. The second implication of Jesus' obedient sacrifice is that believers in the Lord have been sanctified. Look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the
1: offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Look, in this whole section, there's
0: a contrast that's being made. Animal sacrifices and the obedient sacrifice of Jesus. That's the contrast that's being made here. When you think about the animals, the animals have no consciousness of why they're being killed. You know, the animals don't go, oh, oh, you know what? Lord, I'm doing this. I'm going to my death as a personal act of obedience to you. No, the animals don't do that. In fact, They didn't give up their lives willingly. The animals were actually coerced against their will, dragged literally to die for the sake of the people. But in contrast, Jesus, he was not forced into it. Jesus willingly, of his own will, offered his life for the sin of his people so that they could be cleansed and forgiven of their sin. Voluntarily, obediently, in submission to God, Jesus offered his life for the sake of his people. That's the big difference between animal sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifice. See, this was the greatest act of love shown for the father and for his people here's how one commentator put it quote this is the picture of love jesus was not just given for you he gave himself for you the sacrificial system it was impersonal distant external and it was easy for it to just become a matter of
1: performing the rites But Jesus offered himself out of love. It was personal. See, Jesus, out of love for his father and for his people, was
0: obedient even unto death to do his father's will. No animal could ever do that. That's why this was a sacrifice that most pleased the father a perfectly obedient sacrifice in every sense of the word. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is so perfect that the author says it's a once and for all sacrifice, meaning there's no need for any other sacrifice. In fact, verse 10 says it's a sacrifice where there where those who have put their trust in Jesus in the sufficiency of what Jesus has done have been sanctified, is what verse 10 says. See, through the sacrifice of Jesus, He has sanctified us who are believers, meaning He has made us holy. He has uh, set us apart for Himself forever. This is talking about a positional status it's a status that comes on every believer that trusts in the sufficiency of Christ's work and this status then forever is conferred on them where they are declared as positionally holy and positionally sanctified for God now, this doesn't mean that the Christian, therefore, will be sinless, you know, all throughout their life on this earth. But it does mean that their eternal position or their eternal standing before God
1: is one of being made holy and set apart in God's sight. I want you to just, now you might think of it, okay, I get that. As Christians, we have been made holy.
0: We've been made set apart, and we were righteous in God's sight. But I want you to think about this for a moment. For a Jew, this was something altogether radical. I mean, to stand as one who has been sanctified, to stand as one who's been set apart by God, who has been made holy forever in God's sight and counted as righteous, I mean, this would be almost unthinkable. Why? Because they knew that their sin issue ever stood before them. That's why they, they had repeated sacrifices again and again and again and again and again. But what he's saying is through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, believers have been sanctified forever in God's sight and are righteous in His sight and are set apart in His sight. Now, I think for us believers, we just need to stop here for a second and just ponder on this. What we need to remember is that our sin issue was so deep rooted, so vile and so deep rooted, so within us, so part of who we were, part of our nature, that it was impossible for any animal sacrifice or human effort or any kind of penance or whatever. to ever deal with our sin issue, so that we could be made righteous and holy and sanctified in God's sight. See, the only reason we are now accepted in God's sight is because Jesus willingly and obediently offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. And that sacrifice not only brought us forgiveness of sins, but is obedient righteous life it is that obedient righteous life that is now put on us that is what covers us so that when God looks at believers in Christ he doesn't see someone who is just forgiven he sees people who are sanctified people who are holy clothed with the righteous holy obedient life of Jesus that would have been an impossibility for us to achieve and has been done only because of the obedient, willing sacrifice of Jesus that no other animal could ever achieve. May we never forget that or take lightly what Jesus has done. Now to, now the author is going to further prove his point that Jesus' sacrifice is indeed sufficient and there is no need for any other sacrifices in verses 11 through 8 and he's going to bring two proofs about the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice further in 11 to 14 he's going to say Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient and it's proven by the posture of Jesus look at verses 11 and 12 And every priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all, for all time, a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's a contrast here now being made between the old covenant priests and what they did and what Christ has done. See, every priest under the Old Covenant stood offering the same kind of sacrifices day in and day out. I mean, this went on for about 1,500 years under the Old Covenant. You know, there would have been thousands of priests that came and went during this, this time. And even more animals would have been sacrificed And over and over, this priestly work went on for more than a millennia. But here's the thing. During their priestly ministry, if there was one piece of furniture that was missing in the tabernacle, it was that there was no chair in the tabernacle. By design, the priests were meant to be standing the whole time. You say, why? Because their work was never complete to bring about forgiveness of sins, to take away the sin of the people. But in contrast, Jesus Christ, the better and ultimate priest, when he offered himself as the one-time better sacrifice for the sin of his people, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. What that means is that Jesus' one-time sacrifice of himself was fully accepted by God for the sin of his people. Jesus seated at God's right hand meant that his atoning work for the sin of his people had been completed. The work is finished. And that is exactly what Jesus said on the cross as he died, as he was perfectly obedient even to the point of death, and he said, it is finished. The one-time sacrifice of Jesus is effective for all time to deal with the sin of his people. That work of atonement is done, and that is symbolized by Jesus sitting down, because that work atoning work is done but what is he doing seated at God's right hand well the one thing we know the author has already said in the previous chapters that he continues to intercede for his people so we know that but as far as his atoning work it is finished and then verse 13 says that he's now waiting From that time until his enemies should be made a a footstool for his feet. What the author is saying is Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. His atoning work is done. But he'll return again at the Father's appointed time. Not to offer another sacrifice. No, that has been done at his first coming. No, but when he comes again, he's coming to judge his enemies and to put them under his feet to literally to in a symbolic way make them his footstool talking about total subjection of his enemies everything and everyone that opposes christ will be subjected when christ
1: returns and then finally he will establish his kingdom And for those of us who are believers, this is the significance of Jesus
0: being seated at God's right hand. He says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time
1: those who are being sanctified. So many priests, many sacrifices
0: under the old covenant. But by this one time sacrifice of Jesus, he has perfected, again that same word, he has completed or qualified or made fit for all time. His people so that they can enter into God's presence freely. And this is something that the animal sacrifices could never accomplish. In fact, the author says Jesus is one time sacrifice has perfected those who are being sanctified that's interesting that he says that because just before he said have been sanctified and uh, and i i would think perhaps this is a reference to what's called as practical or progressive sanctification see here's the thing that we need to understand on the one hand Every believer who has put their trust in Jesus and that work on the cross is sanctified positionally. They're set apart and positionally made holy. That's their eternal status before God. Their positional status before God. But then on the other hand, it's also true that you know, believers still sin. So what God does then is... During their life on this earth, God works in the lives of believers and progressively sanctifies them, not just positionally, but where the believer is made holy from the inside out. Now, it's that idea of being made more like Christ. So every believer is perfected and sanctified to be in God's presence in an ultimate sense in the end. And this is an objective reality. This is true for every believer and it will be forever. Just as it is true that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God having completed his work of atonement. I mean this is a wonderful truth to ponder on as well. That we who are believers are becoming what Jesus' sacrifice has already ensured that we will become. Positionally we are holy, we are righteous in God's sight and now we are in every sense of the word from the inside out becoming that. And why is this? Because of some self-effort of ours? No, this is not something that we do ultimately. This comes only from the finished work of Jesus. So that's the first proof that Jesus Further proof that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient because Jesus is seated at God's right hand. And that is proof that believers will be perfected and will be ultimately sanctified. The second proof that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient is because of the Holy Spirit's promise.
1: And that's in verses 15 through 18. Let me just read that. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness
0: to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that
1: I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds,
0: I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer Any offering for sin. Now, this is again quoting from Jeremiah 31, and we've looked at this before. And the author is rehashing Jeremiah 31, and he's sort of saying, Remember the Holy Spirit who wrote the Old Testament? And he has said through Jeremiah that he will make a new covenant. After after those days, when the latter days come, and when this new covenant comes, what's going to happen? I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, meaning that I will give the people under this new covenant a new heart. And they will have a desire and the ability to obey me in a way not given under the old covenant. And then he goes on to say, verse 17, and part of that promise also of the new covenant was that the Lord said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, I want us to just think about this for a moment. This is not saying God will forget his people's sins. I mean, God doesn't have dementia. He doesn't have memory lapses. See, he, he, he's the all-knowing God and he knows everything all at the same time. So he can't forget things. He never loses knowledge, he never gains knowledge. He's the all-knowing God all the time. But what he's saying here is, I will remember their sins no more. He's not saying he'll forget, but he's saying he will choose not to remember there's a big difference between the two forgetting is a passive thing you just sort of forget like that but what God is saying is I will choose not to remember the sins of my people I love that that he will not remember the shortcomings and the failures and the sins
1: and the vileness of his people he will choose not to do that And so, the author's point is, well,
0: that has happened, right? Because of what Christ has done. Atonement has been made. Forgiveness of sins have been made. And because forgiveness of sins and atonement has been made, God will now choose not to remember the sins of his people. And so, because of that, his point is, There's no longer any
1: more need for any other sacrifice, any other animal sacrifices. You know, um, it's interesting that here the author talks about um,
0: choosing not to remember sins. I think it is so wonderful when you think of people under the Old Covenant. Because remember what he just said in verses 1 through 4. What do the sacrifices do? It was a reminder of sin. It was a reminder to the people they are sinful and death has to be paid through the sacrifice. It was a reminder to the people that God still remembers your sin. That's why you need to repeat these sacrifices. But the wonderful thing is under the new covenant, God says, I will remember your sins no more. And that's what we come to celebrate in the lord's table right it's not coming to celebrate or to think about our sin ultimately and the judgment that overhangs us no it's coming to celebrate what christ has done and the fact that god does not remember our sins anymore sins have been paid for forgiven
1: we have been cleansed hallelujah praise to our lord You know, and, and here's the, the, yeah, I would dare to
0: say even the blasphemy of it. See, in the Roman Catholic system, it is taught that the Mass, which is their equivalent of the Lord's Supper or Communion, that the bread and the wine actually transforms literally into the blood and the body of Christ. And the reason why Catholics are to take part of this is that's the only way they can be forgiven of their sins. And there's a sense in which it's like they're re-crucifying Christ every week or however often they have mass. Now, some Catholics would say, no, it's actually not re-crucifying. It is just, it's really the crucifixion of Christ captured in a timeless sense. That this, this sacrifice of Jesus just continues on and you just need to come to him and this becomes live at mass. But that's so foreign to scripture. It's so foreign to what Hebrews teaches. Because that sacrifice is done and over with. And that's why Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. If that work is ongoing, if his sacrifice is ongoing in any sense, even in a timeless sense, he would still be standing. The fact that he's seated, the fact that now we have a new heart, the fact that we have been forgiven of our sins.
1: That it was a once and for all sacrifice and there's no need for any other sin. It means that we are totally forgiven of our sins and there is no need for Jesus to be crucified again. So Here's what I want to conclude with.
0: I know there was still you know, because of so many connections with Old Testament and doctrine and things like that. There was a lot even in this passage. But here's what I want you to take home at the end of the day. That the doctrine doesn't stay as doctrine just like that. But if you are a believer in Christ, I want you to know this. That when God looks at you, First and foremost, he chooses
1: not to remember your sins. Not because you haven't sinned this week. Not because you
0: have been perfect all this week. No, because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice in your place once and for all time. That means you have been forgiven of your sins. And so, when God looks at you, he sees you as holy and righteous in and through Christ. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that this would encourage you. This would bring you further joy in just, again, being reminded of what Christ has done for you. That you wouldn't just have an apathetic, ah, oh, humdrum, yep, this is what Jesus has done. And everything is guaranteed. But you would see the vileness of your sin and the impossibility of you to get right with God and the fact that Jesus has done this through his willing, obedient sacrifice that that no animal could achieve. And you would know the joy and peace and comfort and be in awe of God and it would cause you to see how much of a better sacrifice Jesus has been for us and ultimately how Jesus is better in every sense, and that it would cause us to love Jesus more and to live in a way to make much of Jesus and tell others about the great news of what Jesus has done for sinful people like us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for your undeserving grace and love toward us, for sinful, wretched creatures like us, who were so vile that we would never even come anywhere close to your presence.
1: Yet we thank you that for the glory of your Son and for the good of your people, you sent your Son, Jesus, to come in this
0: world to live a perfectly obedient life, Obedient to you, obedient to your will, even to the point of death. So that he would ultimately accomplish your will and bring about total forgiveness for sinful people like us. And not just forgiveness, that we would be holy and righteous in your sight.
1: Lord, we thank you that the work is done may our hearts not be apathetic we confess that we see
0: we don't marvel as much at at what Christ has done and part of that is because we tend to minimize our sin as well but we pray that by your spirit we would see afresh what Christ has done and it would increase our joy in you it would cause us to love Jesus more and to make much of him. For we
1: ask all these things for the honor and praise of Jesus' name. Amen.